Welcome to the Christian Politics Podcast, brought to you by the For Youth, By Youth Productions. This podcast is designed to discuss modern issues through the lens of the Bible. Welcome back to the Christian Politics Podcast. This is your host, James Seyfert, and uh, we are excited about coming to you today. Uh, unfortunately, it's just me today. Bryson is uh, having some things going on family-wise, and so he's not going to be able to be here today. And so if you would and just enjoy the show today, uh, we're going to start out by just discussing one major topic today this morning uh, as we as we talk about it. And so today's big topic is this. <laughs> Today we're going to discuss the life and legacy of Rush Limbaugh. Uh, I'm just going to give a brief brief talk, uh, sort of a commemorating of him. And uh, Rush was a man. He was a powerhouse. He uh, was a great, great radio host. Um, led many, many different things uh, as far as political commentaries, and uh, really had a an interesting time in his life to where. He was able to begin this talk of politics where he didn't have to discuss the other side. And we're going to talk about that later today as well. But he got to come on and have a show which was directly talking about whatever he wanted to talk about. So back in the early 1900s, there was this FCC ruling where you had to give um, time frame, time slots for other people to talk with. Uh, of the opposite view. And uh, about the time when Rush Limbaugh began, um, he started uh, talking and they they took got rid of this legislation. So he was able to come on and speak for as long as he wanted and he didn't have to bring on the opposing view. And so if he was going to talk about economy or education, he didn't have to bring on someone to discuss the other side of it. And so he really had a huge following. And uh, so we want to just give a little bit of a legacy to that and uh, discuss... And, and talk about just how great um, of his life was. He got a Medal of Honor from President Trump. Um, he was one of the only talk show hosts that had three presidents come on and uh, talk with his radio show. So he was a, a, a leader in that area and just able to um, lead in a lot of ways. And so Rush, we want to commemorate his life today. And uh, just uh, if you haven't listened to Rush, go on listen to him. All of his old recordings are or online, you can listen to some of them. And so just to uh, commemorate that. Uh, last thing we want to mention today is just um, talking through uh, some of the things going on with um, education-wise. Um, Joe Biden told Congress that he would not executive order the, um, I just found this out today talking to Daniel, uh, but he would not push through the $50,000 debt forgiveness uh, through executive order, uh, which is good. I'm proud of him for doing that, uh, but I just want to um, commemorate us to continue to pray for our country, continue to pray for our um, political leaders, continue to pray for President Biden and uh, his administration and Kamala Harris, our vice president. Uh, continue to lift them up in your prayers. Uh, I know they'll need it. All right, well, we got here with us today a guest, returning guest, Mr. Daniel Odom to the show, and uh, we're excited about having him today. Well, we're going to be talking about two specific topics today. We're going to be talking about political polarization and free speech. Daniel, go ahead and tell us about how life's been going with you since the last time we talked, and then we'll get into our topic today. 
Uh, it's been busy. I'm second semester senior in college, so I'm getting everything lined up to graduate and hopefully have a good plan after graduation. But this semester, they're making they're making getting to graduation more difficult than I want it to be. But we're yeah. learning. Yeah, the uh, my last semester when I was in college was my easiest. I took 18 credit hours every semester. So my last semester was nice and easy. You know, 12, 13 credits is all I needed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, well, good, good. Well, today we're going to be discussing political polarization. And I've got a definition for you here. We'll discuss in a little bit of free speech as well. Uh, but political polarization is the topic, and it is the divergence of politi- political attitudes to ideological extremes. Uh, almost all discussions of polarization in political science consider polarization in the context of political parties and democratic systems of government. So what that basically means in layman terms, and Daniel, you can give some input on this as well, is that you're going to lean toward what you are most familiar with. Uh, you are going to polarize things. And a lot of people don't know this, and, and we Rush Limbaugh passed away and and uh, this past week, and what really made Rush Limbaugh cutting edge on his end was back in the day, and when I say back in the day, back in the 60s and 70s, when television came in, radio was going the opposite way. Uh, the FCC passed a, um, a basically a, a legislation saying that when you talked on the radio or TV, you had to give time for every subject that you talked about for the opposing political view. And so if they were going to discuss um, economics, they had to give a time for a guest to come on. And if it was a more of a left-leaning show, they had to give someone from the Republican Party to come on and talk about it. Well, when Rush came on was right when they abolished that. And so it was literally he could get on and talk for hours and hours and never have anyone come on with the opposite view. And so this is sort of where we're at now, where CNN, NBC, um, Fox News, they can just talk about what their side of it is. Um, and so that's political polarization. Daniel, what's your sort of thought on that and, and what you're, you're going along with that? Yeah, I like that you touched on the media's influence in political polarization because we'll get to that, and I think that's a big cause of it. But what we're seeing is prior to 1994, there was quite a bit of overlap between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and the people who made up those parties in their political beliefs. And what we've seen since then is that those two groups – have shifted further and further. But I think one thing that is sort of understated is that the poles themselves have also shifted farther apart. So if you look at like the North and the South Pole, you turn it on its axis, so you have a left pole and a right pole. And those two poles have shifted further and further apart from each other. So I think it's it's a combination of both. And then you have the media, who is, I think the media is fairly polarized. Is the, the type of personalities and beliefs yeah. that you see in the media or I think I think they're more representative of the polls themselves and not you know moderate politics. So mm-hmm. when you have polls that are moving farther apart from each other and also getting more airtime than moderate politics, as a direct result, you're going to have more polarization. Yeah, and you touched on this, and this is from the Pew Research Organization. In 1994, uh, it showed that the consistency of conservative to liberal opinion was very very close. Like there was a very small thin line. Uh, and, and just looking 20 years later, the line was divided by almost, I think it said 20 to 21 percent. It said today 92 percent of the Republicans are to the right of the median and 94 percent of the Democrats are to the left of the median. And so there's a huge divide here uh, in the middle, which before that was a lot less um, of a divide. And so 
Uh, there's a lot of statistics on this website if you want to look it up. Uh, but this political polarization, it's dividing not only our nation in and of itself, but it's dividing our communities. It's dividing um, people of worship. It's dividing schools. Uh, we've uh, we've had several kids, teenagers, college students come on, um, and they've most all of them have said, yeah, I can see the political divide. I can see where if I wear a certain apparel, if I wear a hat, if I wear a blue shirt, if I wear all of a sudden I'm categorized and people don't want to be around me. My friends stop talking to me. Things like that happen uh, because of just the divide of what you're in, the political party that you're affiliating yourself with. Um, and so how, well, let's think of this, how can we sort of take this political divide, how can we bring it back to where we're not so polarized? Uh, I'm glad that you wanted to introduce a solution to the problem because I think one of the major issues and one of the major causes of political polarization is that we almost have a media that's based on problem politics. Here's mm-hmm. how I see the cycle. Politicians, journalists, they find a problem, they air this problem, their candidate, the, the politician in the news, they both profit off of that problem and the cycle continues, they just find another problem. What we need to get into is solution politics where people are reelected and articles sell because they produce a solution. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a few solutions. Solutions are obviously harder to come up with than problems. But uh, one of my professors introduced me to what I thought was a great idea, uh, a mandatory national service. To, because you think about what brings people together, it's a common experience. Yeah. And I think one of the major problems is that as Americans, we don't have a lot of common experiences. We don't have a lot in common with people who live in San Francisco, California. Sure. And yeah. I think the South and San Francisco, California are probably closer to those poles, the left and right pole. So I think if we can incorporate some sort of common experience that brings us all together, we can decrease polarization. I think at the same time, conversation will reduce polar- polarization. We have to get out and talk to each other. We have to, to understand each other. And when we can't understand each other, because it's inevitable that we're going to find political beliefs from the left and the left will find political beliefs from the right that they just don't understand. We have to be able to to disagree on things and not exactly understand why we believe a certain way and still accept each other as fellow citizens, equal citizens. And I think that comes into play when we t- start to be more introspective. We have to look into our own emotions, how, we, how, we, uh, how our emotions entangle with our politics and uh, finding a way to keep emotions from driving us further away from each other because that's a, you know, emotion is how journalists sell these days Mm -hmm. they can find a headline that will trigger a response you're going to click on that headline yeah clickbait yes exactly (laughs) clickbait that's exactly right if we can find a way to eliminate clickbait for one withdraw ourselves remove ourselves from the situation long enough to realize this is clickbait this is this is what media is doing this is how they're selling articles yeah then we can start to unwind this problem yeah. Uh, let me ask, let's think of this as well. When you said journalism, I, so many times I see a story that is put out by Fox News or Newsmax or CNN, and, and there's not a lot of research behind it. You know, a lot of times back in the day, we would have an article that would come out, it would go through fact checking, it would go through sources before they ever released it. Now it seems like to me, and maybe this is just my opinion, but it seems like that more and more we're seeing an article or something come out and it's just shared because someone else shared it. There's not a lot of evidence behind it or it's just a a headline. It's Biden did this. Donald Trump did this. 
There's no news to it. There's nothing. To, it's just, let's see how much I can rile the other side up. Let's see how much I can do something to cause someone else to have anger, animosity, whatever. Is that what you're seeing? Is that what you're thinking? Or what, what's your thoughts on that? No, that's exactly right. And that comes straight from the top. That comes from the journalists themselves. But the reason journalists are working this way is a direct result of what media companies are. They're companies. They're big corporations. Their main concern is the bottom line, the mm-hmm. money that they make. And I think what's happened is, you know, if we look at polarization, it's increased over the last 20 years. What's changed over the last 20 years the most? Technology and the way we consume our news. And I think what's happened is that news companies, they've got to where they can get the articles out, but they don't know how to maximize off of getting those articles out to where they can profit enough to have decent journalism. So what you're seeing is, in today's media climate, the journalists, you know, journalists are individual people. The journalists who are able to make a living are the ones who can get the most divisive articles out the quickest. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's, they have to do that to survive because if you're a journalist who's not putting out divisive clickbait articles right now, your articles are not getting read. And if your articles are not being read, they're not making any money. And it's just, it's the, it's the climate that we've created that has been conducive to that sort of journalism. So we have to find a way to one, help these media companies reel this clickbait journalism in by helping them evolve and just be able to to not have journalists in a predicament to where they have to put out the most divisive article the quickest mm-hmm. to, to survive in the journalism industry. Did you ever watch The West Wing? Yes. Okay. So uh, I've heard this this statement on there. I also heard it on another show I watched. I can't remember what it was called. But it was called The, the News Cycle. we got to get ahead of the news cycle or we've got to put a story out there to change the news cycle. Um, and when that show was even made, and that was you know years ago, the news cycle was a day-to-day thing. I mean, it feels like it's almost an hour-to-hour thing now. The news cycle has changed to where every hour, every two hours, every couple of hours, we're beginning a new news cycle. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many press conferences <laughs> is the press secretary having to hold uh, just to get ahead of things, just to stay ahead of this executive order or this issue that we're dealing with uh, to where, you know, back in the day, it wasn't like that. And so we're so news media-driven. We're so immediate uh, we want to really look at one issue right now because well, you may be asking yourself, I don't really see any of this political polarization in my life. I'm not seeing this this tailoring of free speech. Uh, and so we want to give you an example, a, a real live example right now um, that is going on in America with COVID-19. Um, the mainstream media coverage of the New York response and the Florida response of this specific situation. So Governor Cuomo in New York, he has been honored with Academy Awards. He wrote a book about how he handled the pandemic brilliantly, the best leader that we've ever seen. Uh, I haven't read his book. I want to get it. Uh, but we see that when he wrote this and he, he said some of these things, the media has been praising him for his response. And when they mentioned the name Governor DeSantos, which is in... Florida, they tell that he was the worst governor. He he did the worst possible situation. He killed millions and millions of people. And so we want to look at some evidence, some specifics here of the two states. And so the state by state, uh, we pulled this up. There is a list that you can look up the the oldest states, not like the oldest in in age of the uh, when they came into the union, 
but the oldest as far as the oldest mean population. And so if you look, the fifth oldest state, the first is Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, West Virginia. The fifth oldest state is Florida. Their mean population is 42.2 years old. So the average person in Florida is 42 years old. And so they're the fifth oldest state in the population in the in the union. Uh, they have more nursing homes in Florida. They have more uh, rehabilitation facilities. I mean, when people retire, they go to Florida. It's just people fly south for the winter uh, just like birds because they want to stay warm. They don't want to be in the cold. And so in comparison to that, 15 states down from that is the state of New York. And their mean is 39 years old, so three years yet less than uh, Florida. And when we look at the deaths by rate, uh, we're pulling these these a couple of these news articles up. A death by rate in um, the number two state with COVID nineteen deaths would be New York. They had a population of nineteen point four. Okay, if you go down, it's the Florida is about halfway down. I believe it's twenty three or twenty four. I had it added up, uh, but Florida is. Um, 21.5, so 19, 21 million, and cases per million of deaths is 137 for Florida, and I know I'm giving you a lot of stats right now, and for New York, it is almost 50, 60, 50% more at, uh, not 50% more, I'm sorry, 236 uh, point, uh, per million, per 100,000, I'm sorry, per 100,000 deaths of COVID-19. So we're seeing a substantial many more people dying in New York than Florida, but yet we're seeing that Florida is the bad people and New York is the good people in the response. Uh, there was several things that were mentioned uh, with Cuomo. They said that uh, he was sending people from the hospital to the nursing homes and that these people were in the nursing home and they were spreading COVID-19. And this is the direct quote. I'll try to find it. From Cuomo, he said that death is inevitable. Those people in the nursing home, they were going to die anyways. So it just so happened they died from COVID-19, but it was just inevitable. They were going to happen anyways. Uh, DeSantos had no major lockdown like New York saw and like we saw in other states. Uh, but yet we're seeing that the mainstream media is praising and they're crucifying DeSantos versus Cuomo. Um, and so... What's your thoughts on that? I know I rambled a little bit, but I wanted to give some of those stats out, and I butchered some of those stats. I'm sorry, but you can look them up. I'll put the the news the the sites on our show notes as well. Well, I think um, I think that's just the game the media plays these days. You know, if you watch CNN and then go to Fox, everybody knows it's like you're living in two different countries. Yeah. And um, you know, I think this is just one example of the polarization of the media. Just like the you know we're a result of our media, so. You know, I think it's just it's it's par for the course at this point, and it's definitely an issue. But I think we'd be remiss if we didn't say that it goes both ways. You know, I think if you look at Fox News and you you watch how they speak about the left, mm-hmm. the left, you know, it, there's the same sort of antipathy from Fox News as there is any other. You know, it's 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 not a left or right thing. It's a whole of mainstream media thing. I think it's a whole issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Uh, I, it just really is it's frustrating on both parts. I, I, I really wish we could get back to uh, Walter Cronkite, who just gave the news. There was no opinions. There was no, 
I'm sure if you went back, of course, there's going to be some people that say, oh, he was leaning more towards one way or another. But he literally just read the news. He just told us what was going on. We didn't have social media. We didn't have those things around in that time. But he just simply said, this is what's going on. I'm going to give you the news. And it wasn't trying to manipulate things one way or another. Um, And so I wish we could get back to that point um, and really just understand that facts are facts. We don't need to twist them one way or another to make it prove one point or another. Um, And just look at the facts and look at them. Uh, Last thing we want to talk about real quick before we uh, will give one last closing, sort of how we can respond as Christians to this political polarization is the free speech, the censoring. Uh, What is your initial thoughts, Daniel, on the censoring? We're seeing that Twitter and Facebook, they're having bans. Uh, They've banned Donald Trump. They're saying that Donald Trump will never come back on the Twitter or Facebook. Uh, They just banned uh, the MyPillow owner guy. Um, And then we're seeing just daily almost people who are saying, hey, I put something on there and it's going away. Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw this the other day where some guy said I shared a photo that someone else shared and I got it taken down, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Where's the consistency there? Well, there is no consistency. Uh, I think that's one of the most obvious things is that you know, Twitter, Facebook, all these tech giants, they're private companies, so they can run with their own regulations. But I think if you break down the regulations and if you break down the criteria that they remove posts and remove people for, their criteria are extremely left-leaning. Mm-hmm. So I think when you have these tech juggernauts that are more powerful than almost any other entity in America, they're rivaling the government at this point, Yeah, uh, it's dangerous. You know, if, if they have control over who has free speech, then in essence, they run the country. Because if they have control over who has free speech, they have control over who gets elected. And I think what really needs to happen is that they need to understand the responsibility that they've undertaken. Their responsibility at this point is to uphold free speech in the United States. You know, Whether they want it or not, mm-hmm. they own the platforms that speech happens on these days. And when you see... Amazon cuts Parler. I thought that was extremely out of line because Amazon has a million-dollar deal with the CIA. Yeah. So how are you going to limit free speech and then turn around and cut a deal with the CIA? So I think I think the power of big tech is one of the scariest things going on today. I think they have the power to turn this into a, uh, a social authoritarian state. Mm-hmm. I hope they don't. I hope they understand what they're doing. I hope they realize the implications involved with their actions. And I think one thing... That is almost a glimmer of hope that has happened in the last week. Is the Australian government actually started to combat big tech? And while that was a glimmer of hope, seeing a government actually uh, act against big tech, seeing the the backlash from Facebook in Australia was scary because what they did was they just wiped all news off of Facebook. And if you look at the way we consume our news today, something like eighty percent of news consumption is off the internet. So if they can just wipe off all news, then you have a populace that doesn't know anything. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, it's a, it's a, it's a major issue, but finding a solution to that issue is equally as hard because we do live in a country with freedom of speech. And at the same time, we, you know, we're a capitalist country where they have their own protected rights. So mm-hmm. figuring out how to walk the line of protecting their freedoms while protecting the freedoms of the entire United States is, it's difficult, but I, I hope we can find a way to to correct the mistakes that have been made. Yeah, I think I mentioned it on this show once before, uh, but have you ever seen the the social the social dilemma on Netflix? Mm-hmm. If if you're listening to this and you haven't watched it, 
If you're a parent, sit down with your kids. Watch this movie. It is a very interesting movie. Uh, It's, I think, about an hour and a half long. But it shows just how much information they're taking and curating your news media outlet, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be, uh, even down to Pinterest and how they show you stuff. Uh, It is crazy to see that. When I saw it for the first time, my mind was blown because I did not realize how that much they even track how long I'm looking at something, how long I swipe through something, what I go back to, who I'm searching, who to put on my... Oh, it's it's incredible. And and then it really goes to show of why am I seeing something and then I'll send something to my brother and say, hey, did you see this? No. I'm thinking, man, this is a huge story. Why didn't you get to see it? Because he wasn't searching for that or hadn't been looking at that in his history. And so Facebook didn't see relevant to show it to him when it should have been something that everybody should have seen. And so in my mind, I mean, maybe my, maybe it shouldn't have just only been me that saw it. Uh, but all of a sudden, we began to see things in the media, how we perceive our internet, through how we perceive our, me- our, our media, our news through internet, uh, completely changes a ton of stuff. And they, they really control what is looked at politically. They control the news cycle with their algorithms, you know. In a way, I think they can almost control your mood through yeah. their algorithms because if they want to, if they want you to be politically divisive on a certain day, I'm sure they have a way to manipulate the algorithm to produce a video that is going to, to enrage you. So it's, it's a dangerous amount of power. Yeah. And even, you know, you think about the election that we just had, the amount of influence they have over just the election of them, what they're going to push to certain people in their platforms, maybe... Uh, a scandal or something that we maybe not want to see, well, they just take it away. Or maybe something derogatory towards the candidate that you're wanting to vote for would now show up on your news media outlet um, and to persuade you one way or another. And, uh, I mean, it went through the Senate. It went through the House. They, they, they drilled the big tech companies on their ability, and then they said, no, we don't, we don't influence the election whatsoever. <laughs> but there's algorithms out there that are influencing something, uh, most definitely. So, I think it's been it's been the most most obvious in this last election cycle and in recent times. I think you know, 2016, 2017, they weren't as brave with the things they were doing. Now with you know, like I said, with Amazon cutting parlor, Twitter banning the president, they're yeah. they're they're getting a lot more brave. Yeah. And even how they're banning a, a, a like I said, the my pillow owner. Mm-hmm. You know, he's outspoken against abortion. Uh, he helped create the movie Unplanned. He put a lot of money toward it. Um, and not a lot was ever said about any of that. But all of a sudden, he made one statement, and then they just took him off of everything. Um, and this is, a, this is a capitalist. This is a guy who's, who's trying to invest into the world. He's, he's given a business, and he's trying to influence people. And yet they're saying, well, you know, your business, we don't want to influence. We don't want to see it prosper. So they're literally hindering people's businesses. Because someone else can come out with a better pillow, and he's not going to have any competition. Uh, they're not going to have any competition because he's not on there anymore. And then they've supported David Hogg, who is popular, uh, popular liberal speaker, and he has started his own pillow brand uh-huh. in the wake of... Yeah, he's gone. There's no competition. Might as well do something else. Yeah. So our Christian response, I pulled this article up on nonmarks.org. It's a great website that I use often. Um, and it's called the More Christian the Democrat or Republican. Um, and it starts out by saying our allegiance to political parties 
is tentative in the light of our allegiance to Christ. So as we think through these issues, and it goes through several things that we're going to pull out a couple of things, uh, but, but we should be looking at our politics through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of Christ. Uh, it says this, uh, he's making a quote from a guy named Thomas um, Halberton. Have you ever heard of Thomas Halberton? I have not. All right, it's back in 1840, so I hope we wouldn't have known too much about him. But he said this, and and when I say this quote, you're going to think, oh yeah, I've heard that before. But it says, never discuss religion or politics with those who hold, who hold opinions opposite of yours. Okay, he goes on to talk about how we shouldn't talk about politics at dinner. We shouldn't talk about religion at dinner. We shouldn't talk about these things because someone could think different than us, and so we shouldn't talk about it to cause an argument. How many times have you been at a dinner or at a lunch or with someone who you know maybe thinks a little bit different than you politically, so you avoid that topic? Almost every day. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's an everyday, so, so, it's an everyday thing. So we do that because in nature, it's ah, we don't want to be divisive today. We don't want to cause problems. So we're just not going to talk about it. And so it's the elephant in the room, no pun intended there on elephant, Democrat, uh, donkey, nothing like that. But it's something that we don't want to address. Uh, my mother-in-law or my stepmom, she is a, uh, a very outspoken Democrat. She had uh, Barack Obama. Uh, she was one of the organizers for him to come in in Charlotte when he came in for the DNC. And so we, I know she's a, she's a pretty hardcore Democrat. Uh, but I, and she may be listening to this. I don't know. Uh, my dad may be listening. I don't know. But, but when we're around them, I still talk about it. I still bring it up. I still bring up Nancy Pelosi, and I'll bring up things just as small jabs. And she knows I'm joking. Uh, but in same thing, she'll bring up political things that I, I agree with or maybe don't agree with. And she'll say, hey, what about Governor Cooper? I call him King Cooper. My dad calls him Hal Cooper. Uh, and so, so we've got these nicknames, and we joke about it. But at first, when they first got married, we didn't talk about it. We'd go over there and we would talk about something completely different because we didn't want to address it. And so we found ways to do that. Uh, but too many times when we get to this political polarization, we won't discuss it with anybody else that sees differently than we do because we're afraid of the conflict. We're afraid of the, uh, the animosity that may happen instead of just openly talk about things and discuss differences of ideas, have critical conversations, have critical thoughts to be able to think through them. The article continues on to say, First, Scripture teaches that human beings are deeply and inescapably religion, religious people. Uh, to our core, we're going to be religious. We are seeking a God somewhere. It continues on by saying it makes it clear that we cannot separate our private life from our public life. If you are privately a Christian, you should be openly be a Christian. If you're privately independent, you're going to openly be an independent. If you're Democrat, Republican, whatever... Your private life and your public life are going to collide at some point. And so instead of running from it, instead of hiding from it, embrace what you believe and come out and talk about these things. Too many times we, uh, with intellectual knowledge, we don't discuss it. And then we get frustrated because no one's talking about it. <laughs> that, that's why we're having this show. That's why we're talking about this issue, because it's a tough topic, but it's something that We've got to be able to find common ground. We've got to be able to have those conversations with people that don't believe the same way we do, whether it be religion or politics, and discuss those things in a healthy, open manner. I remember when I was a fifth grader, and I've always been the one that's going to argue if someone's wanting to argue, and a kid was sitting at the lunch table, 
And he began talking about baptism. So I'm a Baptist. I've always been a Baptist. And I think he was a church of God or something like that. And they believe baptism just a little bit different than we do. And so I went to one of our deacons in our church and I said, hey, can you give me some ammunition to be able to talk to this guy about baptism? And so I began learning and I studied a little bit at fifth grade. And so the next day I went back to school and I sat down at his table just to sit down with him. And I initiated the conversation. And I, about 10 minutes in, I mean, we're like yelling at each other back and forth. Across, fifth graders yelling at each other across the table. Finally, the teacher came over and said, what are y'all arguing about? And so we told her we're arguing about baptism. And she looked at me and she said, you were this heated. And everyone else is looking at you like you guys are over here mad at each other when you're talking about something religion. And it hit in my mind, we're deeply religious people. And I made a fool out of myself in fifth grade because I was wanted to be right. I wanted to prove him wrong when all I had to do is simply just sit down and have a conversation with him. But I was the one that initiated it. I was the one that was gung-ho. I'm going to be right. And it led into this huge argument that ruined a lot of testimony and a lot of later on. Um, so our Christian response, what's your initial thoughts on that? And then I'll read a couple more statements. You know, I think like you said, you went into that with a lot of emotion. You were very emotionally attached to the outcome of the argument as a win or a loss. And I think it's important that we think of all of our political conversations, just like religious conversations, it's not a, a win or a lose game, but as a, a discussion, open-minded discussion. Because if we go into every argument, every discussion with the attitude of, I'm going to beat this person today. There's, there's not a lot of good that can come out of that. Because if we beat them, how does that bring them closer to us? Yeah. It might make us feel good, but how is that going to bring them closer to us? Just like if somebody beats us in an argument, how is that going to bring us closer to them? You know, you think about if you've lost an argument, you, you begin to resent that person. Mm-hmm. So I think we, need to, we have to go into these discussions, and that's what they should be is discussions, open-minded, and see them as the sharing of ideas, not a competition between two sides. Yeah. And, you know, I was raised more militant, I guess you could say. In my religion, we were a very abrasive uh, in, in, in the part that I was raised in. And so an argument to me is, is a great thing. And too many times an argument just turned into yelling and screaming because that was the culture that I was raised in. Uh, and so we've got to get to the point where we can sit down and have a intellectual good conversation. Doesn't have to end in yelling and screaming and calling names. Uh, listen to various different podcasts, and and one guy I was listening to the other day, he got upset and he just started calling people names. Name calling doesn't win an argument. <laughs> Facts and legitimate valued ideas win arguments. If you're going to even classify it as a win. I think that two people can have a talk and both can walk away winning because you both shared ideas and you both shared good thoughts. Too many times we think if I don't walk away being the ultimate, I've changed their mind that I've lost. No, you can sit down and talk to people and discuss different side of the, of the, of the aisle that maybe that other person never thought of and you can still walk away winning. And so those are some good things there. I think uh, what defines, what should define a win, especially in, a democratic government is a consensus. If you and that person that you're talking to can even find the smallest thing to agree on, that's going to open the door to the next conversation where instead of having poor rapport because you got in a fight, mm-hmm. you have great rapport because you were able to find that small little sliver of something to agree on and end the discussion on agreement. And that can just start almost a domino effect of coming back together because you find things to agree on. Yeah. One question that, that is written in this article is, 
Should Christian Americans become involved in party politics? What's your thoughts on that? Oh, 100%. 100%. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's your duty as a citizen. And if if you live in the United States and you're a Christian, that doesn't exempt you from being a citizen. I think it's your duty as a citizen to be politically active. And I think that's... That's the the core of the argument. It is your duty as a citizen to be aware, to be competent, and to to vote. That's another big thing. It's your duty to vote. Yeah, our vote makes so much of a difference. And and I've got family members, uh, my my father in law. My sometimes uh, I've got. I'm not going to mention any names. I may even edit that out. Uh, but I've known people in my family who say my vote doesn't matter in one in you know 160 million votes that were cast this last year, a little less than 160 million. What's my one vote going to do? What's my one vote going to matter? And my, my always response is this. Don't, don't think of the 160 million people that cast a vote. Think of your county. Think of the people that you, your vote can literally change whether one person is in city council, county commissioner, school board, that's the politics that we've got to be concerned about. Vote the big scale, yes, but vote more of the small scale every two years, every four years, every six years when those offices come open because that's where we're going to make the difference. Little counties by little counties become bigger counties that can band together and make a difference. And so that's where we've got to to stop thinking of, well, my one versus 160 million isn't going to change anything. Yeah, it may not, but it's going to change something on a small scale. It's going to change the way your kid's educated. It's going to change the way your taxes are paid. It's going to change a lot of those little things that we don't think about. Uh, When my father-in-law, when he ran for, um, I believe it was a House seat in Arkansas, he lost by like 20 votes. 20 votes he lost by. Okay, that's 20 people thinking my vote doesn't matter. And that's how tight some races are. That's why in Georgia we had runoff elections because sometimes they can be that close and your vote does make a difference. And so we as Christians must step up. We must vote biblical values uh, and we must investigate who we're... Don't just take someone's article that you saw on Facebook and say, well, that's what it's going to be. No, look into it, investigate it. That's what we're talking about today. Um, And so uh, the big thing in this article ends on nine marks. It says that we are quick to spot the idolatry in another party, whether it be socialism, progressivism, uh, but too many times we forget to see the idolatry in our own party. We forget to see that, well, one side wants socialism, but yet we're worshiping a man on the other side. And so many times we forget to, um, to see that in ourselves. And then it goes on to say one last thing. We must determine to foster a sort of table fellowship within our churches, because this is written to churches, and emphasize Christian unity in the midst of political differences. Uh, that's sort of what we're talking about today a lot, is, is, is having that uh, ability to bring people together and to discuss those common ideas, like you said, find something that you'd agree on so you can continue that friendship and the table fellowship. I love that term, tabling fellowship of sitting down and enjoying a conversation with someone. Any closing thoughts, Daniel? Just that I think, you know, if we look at this from a Christian standpoint, how Christians can have an impact on political polarization, I think the church has a few great tools that can help with this. You know, you look at when we had the flood in here a couple months ago, how much churches were involved in that. Things of that nature where the church gets out in the community, they show themselves being a positive influence 
you know, that's going to show whatever, you know, and whatever side is the other side to the church, mm-hmm. that's going to show them that the church wants to influence in a positive way. Yeah. And then at, at some point, it's inevitable that the more that the church gets out helping in these events, helping with outreach programs to kids, et cetera, they're going to interact with the other side. And the more positive interactions that the church can have through their positive influence, the closer our country will come together. Yeah. And even with that flood, when you mentioned it, the government came in for a couple of days. Red Cross came in, helped out. A couple of days later, they were gone. They were out of here. And uh, some of the people that had gotten a complete brand new camper donated to them for free. Twenty, thirty thousand dollar camper for free was given to them by Salvation, or by not by Salvation, by Samaritan's Purse. Began to, you know, when you start getting free stuff, you expect more and more stuff. And uh, one of them said this. They said, you know, uh, you know, so and so got more than I did because they start talking to each other. Hey, how much did you get? Well, my family's got five or six people, so we, you know, we got this. Oh, well, you got more than me. And so one person actually went up to one of our pastors and said. Um, you know, I can't believe that person over there got more. And the pastor looked at him and pretty quick wittily and said, you know, you could have got nothing, but the churches of Alexander County decided to step up and help you. Mm-hmm. What did the government do for you for the last three months? Did they give you a brand new camper? And all of a sudden their demeanor changed because they realized, wow, yeah, I, y'all have done a lot. Churches and Samaritan's Purse have stepped up and have done things, and that's what it's about. That's what Christian unity is about, um, and getting rid of our political differences and and banding together to reach people for the cause of Christ. So, any closing thoughts? All right, let's pray, and we'll close out the show. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for allowing us to be able to come and talk. Pray, Lord, that this talk would be uh, beneficial to people. I know that political polarization and speaking to people on the different side of the aisle or the different beliefs that we may have It's tough, but too many times we're not speaking about it, which is causing us to grow further and further apart. So I pray, Father, that you'll help us to continue to grow closer, to continue to uh, help us to draw unity within our community and help us to ultimately serve you. And I pray that your name will be blessed in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for listening to our show today. And if you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on flybyproductions at gmail.com. Reach out to us on social media at gmail, I'm sorry, at uh, Facebook and also at Instagram. And until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening to this podcast presented by FYBY. If you enjoyed the content, please leave a rating or review and check out our Facebook page for more content.